Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast and episode two of College Sport Resistance Week. Uh, and man, like we are so excited about this show because yeah. we got to talk to Kane Coulter. I've been trying to track down Kane Coulter, <laughs> and then suddenly I connect with him, and it's a revolution in college sports. <laughs> happening perfect so timing happy. yeah as we as we interview the person who led the last revolution against college sports um so we go deep on what happened at northwestern the union drive the northwestern football team i think it's essential that everyone who pays attention to these issues around exploitation and justice in college sport we have to know what happened at northwestern we have to know and understand our history um, to to honor it and the people who have struggled before and also to learn from it tactically. And so we try to really accomplish both of those things and ultimately um, bring that history to bear on the moment today. Uh, but honestly, folks, follow Kane Coulter on Twitter um, and pay attention to what he has to say because he is uh, a really, really impressive person and someone whose voice should be a part of all the conversations that are taking place today. So as always, if you are enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, leave us a review on Apple, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at end of sport pod. Um, and if you are feeling especially generous, um, we have set up a new Patreon that you can find uh, via our website at www.theendofsport.com. All the proceeds from that obviously go right back into the show. Um, so in general, we just like to thank all of our listeners. We've had a massive increase in listeners over the past few weeks, and we are super humble and grateful for every single one of you. So with that said, enjoy the show. Kane Coulter is a former quarterback at Northwestern University, organizer and co-founder of the College Athletes Players Association, and organizer and face of the union drive of the Northwestern football team. He has also worked as an organizer for the American Federation of Teachers and for Colorado Working Families. Kane, let me tell you, it is an absolute immense pleasure to have you with us on the show today. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, it's, it's such a pleasure. So first thing we got, we got to ask you, just like we're asking everyone on our show, uh, and actually we've had, we haven't had anyone yet from uh, Colorado. How's the pandemic been treating you in Denver? It's been difficult. I think it's been difficult for, for everyone throughout the globe and mm -hmm. uh, people have had to adjust and, uh, you know, change the shifting you know, circumstances. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in Colorado, the governor uh, recently restricted some uh, or lifted some restrictions on camping. So I've been able to get outdoors and experience that a little bit. So uh, that's been nice. Uh, something on the bright side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's, it's beautiful out there, I imagine. I've never been in, uh, never been in Colorado, but uh, I have to say, like listeners probably know that um, I do, I go out with my daughter pretty much every day into the forest here in North Carolina. So like getting outside is, um, honestly, it's like life-saving at this point for me too. Yeah. Um, so listen, this, I mean, on our show, we talk all the time about labor and high-performance sport, and we talk all the time about college sport and exploitation. There's literally not one person alive that makes more sense as a guest on our show than you, yeah, Kane. Yeah. Um, you are a person who has done the thing 
that we fundamentally believe is necessary for college athletes. Incredibly difficult. That's not, that's not a judgment of college athletes. Like, as you know better than anyone, the system is stacked entirely against college athletes when it comes to um, fighting for your basic occupational health and safety rights, your bargaining rights, your compensation rights, every kind of rights imaginable, right? The system's completely stacked against you. Um, but you've done it. You took it on. So what I would love to start with today, if you could share for our viewers some of the experiences you had fighting the NCAA and trying to produce the kind of working conditions that all college athletes deserve. And to do that, let's, let's start with, can you share with us the origin story of your labor drive to unionize college athletes? My understanding, and I really would love for you to take us through this, but my understanding is that you were doing an internship on Wall Street while taking a class on labor and employment history. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, because like my brain is actually exploding uh, as I say what I'm about to say. If I have it correct, you were reading Marx for the first time when the idea came to you about unionizing college athletes. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's somewhat correct. Um, so uh, the origin story uh, kind of took place while I was taking uh, uh, a program at Northwestern College Chicago Field Studies, and it was in conjunction with the internship I was doing at Wall Street at uh, Goldman Sachs. And um, as far as our required reading for the class, it did include Marx. Um, you know, we did not read the, the entire um, you know, series of, of Capital, but <laughs> it, was, uh, it was particularly his early manuscripts, um, specifically a, uh, an essay on, on alienation. And, um, you know, in conjunction with that reading and also um, particularly, you know, Theodore Adorno uh, talking about the culture industry um, that had me thinking about, you know, the, the place uh, college athletics plays as far as, you know, sports entertainment and these, you know, enormous television contra contracts um, that are negotiated by the conferences. And also, you know, the gambling industry, how it's tied with the sports apparel industry and all these other industries and um, starting to think about that and you know, the, essentially the, this product uh, that's, that's offered as an inter entertainment product that's consumed by so many people in America, um, you know, looking at the labor issues, you know, within that industry and, and trying to provide some solutions. I'm hearing that you were reading Karl Marx and Theodore Adorno um, and you're speaking to, to a Marxist and a sociologist who... Um, are kind of having heart palpitations, even kind of thinking about that while you're working at Goldman Sachs. And that made you turn your sort of eye onto your own experiences in, col in uh, college athletics? Or was this after you had already left and you were no longer playing? No, this was uh, during the, the summer of uh, my junior year going into my senior year um, at, at Northwestern. And, um, you know, I was, I was you know, reading all these things that were, um, you know, sparking um, some ideas. Um, and also, uh, you know, I wrote this, this uh, a paper that was um, kind of looking at the NCAA as a cartel. And I compared it with a potash cartel that I <laughs> was coming across while I was working in, um, in Wall Street. And uh, essentially, I, I viewed the athletic scholarship and the grant and aids as a cap and compensation or essentially yeah. these, these employers coming together and fixing the wages of their labor. Um, all the schools in this case have, you know, made an agreement that in order to keep uh, costs down, they, they have restricted athletes from receiving anything above and beyond an athletic scholarship. And uh, they have this, you know, somewhat quasi police force enforcement mechanism, also an infractions committee that operates as a judicial body. Um, you know, for, for the, 
for the sports league and um, you know looking at some of these issues and, and I felt that that they were a cartel of employers that were price fixing wages and I think that you know th this this case has somewhat been made um, in a lot of these antitrust cases that are making their way through the courts right now and uh, it will be interesting to see you know um, you know how, how, how the judges rule and and uh, but I, I certainly think right now we're going through a paradigm shift in, in collegiate sports and and what this idea of, of amateurism means and you know what what sports should look like within our institutions of higher education yeah no, no doubt and we're going to get to the right now piece because obviously there's there's almost like there's there has not been such a critical moment since what you did at northwestern there was what you did at northwestern there was missouri um and there's now i think in terms of like really yeah. really critical moments in the last decade so there's no doubt that we're going to spend a lot of time uh on what's playing out but i still want to spend a little bit more uh, on this northwestern experience because uh frankly it's really i think it's got to be in as instructive as anything right for for athletes out there who are thinking and, and in the process of making these challenges we can't ignore the history that exists right and imagine that we're always reinventing it again from scratch what you went through is the best blueprint we have for what a struggle with the NCA looks like. And I also have to say that, I mean, it just, Derek said it too. We're two university teachers here listening to you. It's like, my God, there is value to what we do in the classroom sometimes. Um, <laughs> because uh, the, the fact that you had a teacher, right? Who, I mean, like you're telling us that you were reading Marx on alienation and it's like, yeah, those are the readings that I assign my students. And those are exactly the kinds of takeaways um, I would love for students to have. So um, it's amazing. It's amazing and validating to hear that. Um, and so you're, you're talking to us really about the, the big picture piece about, you know, antitrust and, and obviously you had it right and your analysis was spot on, even as an undergraduate student. But I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that like if I'm imagining what it would have felt like to be in your shoes as uh, I started as a quarterback at a power five university in the Big Ten, who, uh, you know, so in other words, has a ton to lose on the football field. Sure, you know, like the NCAA is a cartel. All right, that's fine. Like you can intellectually make that argument and you did in the paper you wrote and that's convincing and I'm sure you did a wonderful job. But like, that doesn't seem like it would be enough alone to drive you to do what you did. So what I'm trying to say is it's an incredibly daring and risky move to attempt to unionize college athletes. What would you say was it that drove you to actually take that step? Um, what were the most important issues for you? Well, I have to give props to uh, Ramogi Huma and the National College Players Association. Um, as I was doing uh, this research, I wanted to see if there was any organizations that were advocating for college athletes' rights. And I, I came across the National College Players Association and, and Ramogi Huma specifically. And to see the amazing work that, that um, they, they have been doing for over a decade um, in, in trying to in, improve the, the lives of college athletes and and uh, you know, challenge some of the injustices. Um, it, it really inspired me. Um, so I, I, we, initially, I, I reached out to the National College Players Association and, and wanted to get involved. And um, Ramogi had coordinated a conference call between a lot of college athletes from, from various schools throughout the, the country. And uh, we were brainstorming different ideas on how to raise awareness and, and um, you know, also brainstorming solutions uh, to some of our issues. Um, you know, we, we initially came up with a, a campaign. It was a televised protest uh, called All Players United. And we wanted players to, um, you know, write APU, All Players United, this acronym, 
um, on, on their gear or wear mm-hmm. uh, wristbands and, and support. And uh, it actually became somewhat of an issue because, you know, there, there were coaches um, that, that restricted some of their players from uh, engaging in, in this protest, and, you know, and, and criticized it for, for not you know, being brought, you know, to the team in, in, a, in a different setting. And so we, we, we did that, uh, I think that was during my my senior year. And, um, you know, that was able to to raise a lot of awareness. But, you know, the, the issues that we were talking about specifically, number one was uh, medical protections. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I think since 2000, there have been 33 football players who have died in off-season workouts. You know, some of them related to collisions and, and traumatic brain injury. Others related to, you know, fitness tests that are imposed by the athletic department. And we are also looking at, you know, football as a, as a, as a sport with almost a hundred percent injury rate and looking at how uh, the medical costs are, are taken care of. Uh, the NCAA did not guarantee a one penny of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sports related medical expenses for, for the student athletes when we were starting this. And, you know, that what, what ended up happening was universities would have their own policies requiring the athletes to have uh, health insurance which was usually uh, in the form of, of their parents' health insurance. But, you know, there's certainly, you know, players whose parents didn't have health insurance mm-hmm. and, and those players were um, forced to, yeah, not forced, but, you know, typically required to buy the university's health insurance policy um, out of their stipend checks. And so the, a lot of times the, the health insurance model op- operated as a secondary payer where if, if a student uh, suffered an injury and, and had an operation done, the billing would, would bill the, the player's health insurance primarily. And then um, sometimes, the, the, I mean, the school often said that they would take care of any out-of-pocket expenses. And, you know, there, there were a lot of situations where players were stuck with their sports-related medical expenses. And, and yeah. this happened throughout all, all the different um, levels of, of college sports, Division One. Division One AA, Division Two, Division Three as well, mm-hmm. and we felt like that was a, an extreme injustice, and especially in the case that we were trying to make that college athletes were, were statutory employees, or employees of the university. Um, we felt like, you know, as as we live in a, a, a society where employment benefits uh, and, and insurance, but health insurance benefits and employer-based healthcare, and health uh, health insurance has become a, a very important compensation form for employees mm-hmm. uh, we felt like if, if they are employer if they are indeed the employer and players and college athletes are the employees that uh, they should have um, health care provided to them and their, and their sports related um, medical costs taken care of that was the one of the the primary issues that that we had um, you know we are also looking at the graduation rates within the two revenue sports uh, the graduation rates were often hovering around 50 percent we, we mm-hmm. felt like that was unacceptable trend and we wanted to see um, a reallocation of, of the resources towards increasing graduation rates and, and mm-hmm. um, increasing the, the academic benefits that college athletes conceive. You know, while there was a cap on um, some of the, the benefits that college athletes could receive in their academic scholarships, there, there was no cap on um, you know, tuition uh, that, that players could receive and whether that included graduate school or you know, trying to make, make sure that they um, graduated um, or left the university with their undergraduate degree. Uh, so we wanted to prioritize that. And another uh, you know, major issue was you know, economic you know, benefits, economic rights for, for the college athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we felt like uh, you know, they were operating in the system where it was you know, generating almost $13 billion, which was the, um, the number given by uh, expert witnesses in a lot of these, these, um, these cases. 
And, uh, you know, with all these other industries that were tied to it, we felt like, you know, that there should be a reallocation of resources um, in, in college athletics. And, you know, to tie all that uh, together, you know, we wanted to increase participation and, and essentially democracy within the NCAA. Uh, and college athletes had all these rules and restrictions, these regulations that they had to abide by, but, you know, there was no real input uh, that they were able to give. Um, the NCAA had, had created you know, what, what we uh, believed was essentially a company union under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, they forbid company unions from employers starting company unions uh, within the workplace, which you know, gave people the illusion of, of participation management decisions, but was really controlled by the employer. And they created this thing called the Student Athlete Advisory Committee, which um, you know operated at, at most universities. But uh, the, the way it was it was structured was that uh, the Student Athlete Advisory Committee would allow uh, the NCAA would allow one person from the Student Athlete Advisory Committee nationally to sit yeah. upon their their board of directors, and it was just one seat. And even above <laughs> the board of directors, they have a, they have a board of governors um, yeah. above the, that, that often sets policy. So, um, looking at that, you know, it really uh, you know, showed um, the the lack of, of participation college athletes have in setting these rules and regula regulations, which we felt like was totally against amateurism. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in, in the spirit of amateurism, how it started, it was it was often you know college athletes uh, you know taking a significant role in 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 the sports leagues, you know, creating their own events. It, mm -hmm. it was often you know, volunteer coaches and volunteer management, but we, we're now in a system where. Um, you know, the highest paid public employee in almost every state is the college football or basketball coach, or, and, you yeah. know, the, the, the manage, management essentially. And, um, you know, we, we, we saw all these issues and, and felt like uh, increasing participation and, and trying to have a collective bargaining unit would be one solution that, that um, would be very effective. And we looked at other you know, sports leagues, professional sports leagues, uh, in their model, we felt like, you know, there had been a professionalization of, of college sports and in those leagues, they had formed collective bargaining units, um, and you know, unionizing ha had been successful. Uh, mm -hmm. Forming the NFLPA, the WNBAPA, um, Major League Baseball's Players Union, uh, and NBB, NBPA, um, mm -hmm. they had been successful in in securing um, protections and, and rights for for their um, athletes and, and their labor force. To think about the fact that this was nearly five years ago that you were sort of um, leading the charge for Northwestern to to unionize, and it's it's wild to think that like the same things you're bringing up, the same issues are still issues today, uh, and still really what is kind of. Um, empathizing this moment that we're seeing around us when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to compensation, when it comes to, I think your, your biggest point is like democracy, like to have a seat at the table and not just one seat at a sub board, uh, at like something that really is almost like a hollow position. I'm interested to get a little bit of um, your take and, and hopefully you can flesh out the actual process of unionization here a little bit for us. Can you walk our listeners through the process of trying to unionize a college football team? Sort of what that entailed and what happened at Northwestern? How did you kind of start the process and where did it take you kind of right up until the National Labor uh, Relations Board? Sure. Um, well, I, I think I must say that um, we wouldn't have been able to even start the process or move forward without the support of uh, the United Steelworkers Union. Yeah, um, who's you know one of the unions that was you know very supportive of our effort and, and provided a lot of resources. 
and uh, so that that was um, that was huge for us. Um, the, the the actual process was, um, you know, we 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 saw Northwestern being the, the only private school within the Big Big Ten. So as far as jurisdiction, it would it would have to go through the National Labor Relations Board, and um, you know they had under the National Labor Relations Act, they had you know, you know a law passed that you know set out the guidelines for you know what it took to form a collective bargaining unit. I believe we had to get 30% of the bargaining unit uh, to sign a petition for the employee status and, and to join the union. And um, so that's where our efforts started. Uh, we were meeting, created a, a bunch of meetings with our team, uh, different levels, and um, you know brought this idea to them and you know told them why uh, this this could be beneficial for for our team and 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 eventually for college athletes as a whole as you know we hope to expand the bargaining unit to the conference level in the ncaa but you know we are starting at our, our local institution and we needed at least 30 percent of the football team to sign union cards um after these meetings and, and we uh, you know made the pitch to, to the college athletes we we were able to get almost 98 percent of the bargaining unit to to sign these employee cards um these union unionizing cards uh, we submitted the cards to the regional nrb in, in chicago and from in, from then on, we had to make the case about why we were indeed employees, and um, in, in that case, they um, judged it by by using a, a three prong test that was you know based in common law um, about uh, you know what what it took to to be to qualify as an, an employee. Um, the first thing was that you had to have a contract for hire, which was evident through our grant aid uh, scholarship agreements that we signed initially. You know when we started. Um, most universities operated off of one-year renewable scholarships or grant aid agreements um, that you know, set forth the terms and conditions, essentially, of their employment. Um, so we, we, we pointed to that as um, our contract for hire. Uh, the second prong was proving that we were under control of, of supervisors, um, which you know, we, we were able to, to prove to the court you know, through uh, largely the, the student athlete handbooks that were issued by um, the institution, you know, showing the rules and guidelines that we had to provide, that we, I mean, that we had to live by and abide by. Um, you know, also at the conference level and the NCAA, but, you know, we were focused at, on making the, the case that we were employees of, of the university. Um, the third one was that we received remuneration for our services, and we um, were able to show that the scholarship agreement was um, an adequate form of remuneration, but there's also a lot of other benefits that were not tethered to education that we proved in the court. And um, the uh, the regional director for the NRB in Chicago agreed with us, with us and, and ruled in our favor that we were indeed employees. And um, this was um, kind of unprecedented within the NRB. There had been cases made specifically in Colorado, actually, um, in, within the Colorado uh, State Supreme Court, uh, there's a case, uh, Denver University versus, uh, I hope I pronounce his name right, Namath, Nemeth, N-E-M-E-T-H. Um, he was a football player at Denver University back when they had their, um, their football uh, team. And he had filed for workers' compensation employment. And the case had made its way to the Colorado Supreme Court, and they ruled in his favor that there was an employer-employee relationship. So that, that was the outcome at the regional level for us um, in our case. From then, there was a, basically a request for a review or a repeal, and a, an appeal to um, the full board in, in Washington, D.C., uh, which, which 
um, took quite some time to actually you know, uh, have the the uh, decision issued. But the the NRB, the full board in in, in Washington, decided that they did not want to exert jurisdiction in our case. They, they did they didn't rule against us, but they said that because Northwestern is the only private school within the Big Ten, if they had a collective bargaining unit, it, it would bring instability to labor relations. Um, and you know, at, at that point, we had to kind of um, shift courses to to looking at the public institutions and the individual state laws, the state industrial commissions, to see where our best shot was to you know make the case that the college athletes are employees and, and try to expand this unionizing effort to other institutions. Um, but that was essentially the process, you know, meeting with our collective bargaining unit, you know, telling them you know why we should unionize, what were the benefits of this. Um, of taking it to the team at, at, at uh, different levels and then, you know, getting them to sign the union cards, you know, taking the case to the regional level and then having it be appealed to Washington, D.C. Um, so if, if I'm hearing this correctly, the, the national board in Washington actually ruled that if they were to provide you labor rights and union rights, that it would create instability in a labor market that by virtue of its own ruling it doesn't recognize you as like does it is this making sense is that what they kind of said yeah i mean we, we thought that they're just kind of punting on the issue but yeah, yeah because western is the only private school within the big 10 and you know this would only apply to private schools because only you know the, the the public schools throughout the country are, are subject to their own state laws uh, which vary um you know as you know with you know these so-called right-to-work laws and yeah. you know the restrictions in other states, yeah. uh, you know, especially in the, in, in the South. Um, so that that was you know what they cited as as far as grounds for not exerting jurisdiction um, in in that in that case. Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I got I, there's a, a ton of follow-up here on this, um, but I, I want to say first because sadly our colleague uh, Johanna Mellis couldn't be with us today. But I just want to say, like, she's an oral historian uh, and speaking kind of as an oral historian, I am so thrilled that you're sharing this because you are just meticulously kind yeah. of laying out for, for kind of for future you know, listeners and people who want to organize. You're, you're, you're giving us this oral history of what happened and it's essential. I mean, like people really need to understand what happened because that is one of the most important, like what you did there, what you've laid out for us is one of the single most important moments in the history uh, of college football, college sports, in my opinion. Um, so really, like, thank you so much for breaking that down so meticulously. Now what I want to do is I want to kind of go through, because you've given, you've given, I guess, again, like the kind of the nuts and bolts, the broad strokes, the legal side, uh, and we needed to know that. But now I, I'm so fascinated on kind of some of the internal dynamics, the relationships um, in the kind of communities you're operating in, you know, how people experience this moment. So the first one I have is in a, actually a really good Sports Illustrated interview. You said that one of the criticisms that you um, that was directed at you at the time of the NLRB case was that. And this, honestly, I, I hate this phrase. OK, <laughs> this is why I'm asking you this question. They said, oh, you signed up for this. Right? You signed up for this. Why are you complaining? Why are you whining about this? Why are you causing trouble? You signed up for this. Can you explain how you would respond to that very frequent and, in my opinion, totally specious critique? I mean, we, we signed employment contracts, and then that's yeah. the case. Yeah, that that's exactly what you said. Was that, was, that, was that we did? We did sign a lot of, uh, of contracts, yeah. um, adhesion contracts, the National Letter of Intent. Um, you know, we went through all these contracts that we signed that, that were 
considered employment contracts. Now, the issue was that um, a lot of times they weren't fairly negotiated. Um, you know, there's, you know, these power dynamics going on when college athletes were getting recruited um, about the contracts being signed. So, yeah, I mean, we, we signed something. We signed these employment contracts that restricted our rights and kind of gave up rights in perpetuity, rights of publicity and, mm-hmm. you know, name, image and likeness rights, uh, things that were being sold off to, um, you know, EA Sports, you know, creating video games and, and things so that you know that 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 was the the, the case that we made is that we, we were certainly you know signing something and um, as with you know any other industry or profession you, you know you'd hope that people can look at those contracts and uh, try to negotiate to to make things better uh, in their workplace and to improve improve upon their experiences um, and um, and their workplace conditions and, and that's exactly what we were trying to do. Yeah, that, that's brilliantly put. Uh, okay, well. Here's the sort of thing now I really, I really want to get into because I actually think that this is probably in some ways the most instructive part for current players um, who are going through, right, of not identical but similar, certainly, experience right now. I want to know about the way in which different constituencies responded to what you were doing. Uh, and there are a lot of groups to think about, actually. And I, and I don't imagine that the responses were the same, right, depending on who we're talking about. Um, so, like... On the one hand, I'm really interested in the kind of pushback you received from uh, administration, from coaches and staff on the one hand, right? Um, but then I, I also would love to hear, you gave us an incredible figure. You said 98% mm-hmm. of your teammates signed cards, which is amazing. That is, that is just spectacular. I'd love to get a sense of some of those conversations, right, in the locker room in terms of ha- how your teammates sort of f- took it up. Because, you know, and one reason I'm asking, for people who are familiar right now, right, on the one hand, we have, um, you know, Big Ten United, which is, be- uh, which is being led by the College, a- um, College Athletes United, um, or College Athlete Unit. now I'm blanking, Derek. College yeah, Athlete College Unity? Unity, yeah. Yeah, sorry, who we had on this show. Um, and they've done an amazing stuff. They said they have 1,000 plus football players from the Big Ten, right, who they're representing. And yet, at the same time, the entire, ostensibly, the entire Ohio State team published a letter basically disowning the effort, right? Which just speaks to how many different voices there can be among players when it comes to issues like this. So I'm also really fascinated on sort of how your teammates did respond. Obviously, they were willing to sign cards. Um, and then the third one, so the first constituency, again, is, you know, admin, coaches, etc. The second is the team your colleagues, coworkers, comrades. And the third is the kind of broader Northwestern community, you know, alumni, however you'd characterize that. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'll start with the athletic department. And, and from what I remember, their response was um, you know, su- supportive at the beginning. Um, you know, they were, they were glad that we were raising these, these issues. They felt like they were important issues to raise and uh, expressed, you know, sentiments of, of support and, and, and Pride in Northwestern and, and what we were doing. Um, that that shifted actually once we won the regional uh, NRB ruling, certifying that that we were indeed employees. Mm-hmm. The next step there, you know, according to the National Labor Relations Act and and, and labor law, was that there was going to be a secret ballot election amongst the bargaining unit, the established bargaining unit, uh, or proposed bargaining unit, um, to actually vote for the union, and that was where. A typical anti-union campaign, you know, came into existence, um, put in, in place by the athletic department and, and also some members of, of the alumni group. 
Um, I also must say that there was, you know, an enormous amount of support amongst uh, amongst the, the alumni at Northwestern and faculty members as well, uh, academic staff, um, you know, other other employees at the institution and throughout the country. Um, but you know, there was a typical anti-union campaign, which which we saw. Maybe not the, the extent of it, but we knew that there was going to be a response and, and some retaliation. Um, that was that was. Uh, you know, somewhat difficult, uh, you know, especially for, for the players um, at, at Northwestern. Um, there's a lot of media attention going on, but, you know, there's this extreme amount of focus put on the unionization effort. And uh, the athletic department, you know, called the players' parents um, and, you know, had a lot of, of meetings, positional meetings, urging the, the players to vote no against the union, using a lot of rhetoric that's typical with anti-union campaigns, third-partying the union, saying that we don't want this third party coming in here and interfering with our relationship, which, which is, you know, silly because the union is, is made up of the players themselves. There's, there's no third party. The union is, is the players themselves. It's collective bargaining and, and things have to be ratified by the team. Um, but you know, there's this you know common rhetoric amongst uh, you know labor organizing movements to try and you know discredit the union and get the players to, to vote against it. Um, you know, there, there was one you know good 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 point made by the athletic department. I, I feel like, and that they said that you know even if college athletes, even if you know the, the college athletes at, at Northwestern were able to collectively bargain with the university, the university has signed contracts with with the NCAA and the Big Ten. Um, you know, guaranteeing their, their um, guaranteeing that they, they operate in agreement with, with NCAA rules. So even if we were able to negotiate with our university and, um, you know, address some of, some of our concerns and, you know, bargain for things that, that were truly substantial, there was, you know, limitations in, in what we could get because NCAA rules still restricted them and they still operated and, you know, Northwestern still participated within the NCAA. Um, so, you know, they, they try to say, you know, your true gripe is with the NCAA and, and the conference is not, not with Northwestern, um, which is somewhat true. But, you know, we, we felt like the strongest case to be made about being employees had to start at the, at the local level, at the institutional level um, at, at, at Northwestern. Um, you know, within, within that case and, and kind of you know, leading in, into some of the collective action, collective action happening now. Um, you know, there, there was a chance, and, and I think still is a chance, to make a, a case of, of, uh, of college athletes being joint employers or having a joint employer, not only their, um, their university, but also the Big Ten and, and the NCAA, who are oftentimes setting these, these, these rules that, that the college athletes have to um, live by. And, you know, they, they have, again, their, their you know, quasi-judicial bodies and their fractions committee and, and tons of resources to investigate infractions and you know trying to address some of these things uh, would have to be done at that level um, which is which is why this this current movement is is so inspiring um, you know amongst the team uh, i think the, the the response to the anti-union campaign was was different a lot, a lot of guys you know stood strong and, and truly felt like this was a solution uh, to um, you know, some of the problems in, in college sports, and, and felt like Northwestern was was leading this movement that would you know, catch hold in, in, in other um, at other schools. And uh, you know, we, we I think we wanted to lead that effort. Um, you know, there's also you know, certainly a, a group of guys that um, that had their minds changed 
um, you know, from, from the initial time where we signed union cards, but there was a secret ballot election, you know, for, for, for in, in that case. Um, and because the NRB did not exert jurisdiction, um, the, the results of, of that vote, you know, never came out. And so I, I can't really speak on, you yeah. know, what was the, the ultimate result of the anti-union campaign, but, um, you know, the, the, the forces against it were certainly strong. Um, but I also am proud of the guys for, you know, uh, how they, they stood strong uh, on their beliefs um, and, uh, you know, supported their teammates and, uh, and, you know, truly showed signs of solidarity and unity, um, you know, amongst some of the chaos. So that was kind of the, the response, um, you know, within the team. And, you know, the, as far as the Northwestern community, it was, it was uh, certainly mixed. Um, mixed response as far as support and, and opposition, um, but uh, you know I, I will say that it's 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 probably difficult um, you know for for certain people in the in the athletic part department to to have you know true support for college athletes collectively bargaining unionizing because they see it as a threat to the the resources that are going towards them um, you know largely athletic athletic directors and, and coaches and um, you know other professionals within the athletic department. Um, who are you know making a, a lot of money um, and and having a lot of benefits with you know the way the resources are allocated now and having a collective bargaining unit trying to put those resources to other uses uh, I feel like you know that, that could have been perceived as a threat and it was probably difficult for them to to truly support what we were doing yeah there's one thing I really have to underline here when you're talking about some of these union busting tactics here and that this is the wildest thing to me that you said that they that the athletic department actually called parents and one of the things that I've seen in um, in, in watching some graduate student workers uh, in their attempts to unionize is the exact same thing. Like parents being called um, to like to, to get in the way and to mediate and to, to prevent um, their, their children from pursuing this. And, and like that's totally messed up. And I actually like as an educator who taught in the United States, I would actually argue that that is in violation of FERPA which like I wasn't allowed to speak to parents of students um, if they came in complaining. So why should the athletic department? I just wanted to kind of underline that as a potential massive issue. And the fact that we kind of put a, ignore it when it's the NCAA or when it's member institutions of the NCAA is all kinds of garbage and all kinds of um, uh, messed up. I agree. And, and uh, yeah. you know, as, as much as the athletic department wants to promote this idea of, of the, the team being a family, you know, yeah. the players' true families and their family relations are, are very uh, in, in important and uh, hold a lot of sway with the, with the players. And so when they were you know, calling the players and, and emailing, you know, this set of kind of Q&A about why the unit would be bad, yeah. um, I think it, it definitely you know, affected um, some, of the, some of the players on the team. Um, Did did anyone ever bring up FERPA? Like, did anyone ever bring up legislation to say, like, the university can't call parents? Um, no, I mean, we, we considered it, uh, you know, being an unfair labor practice, but, you know, it was, mm. it was difficult because you know, our, our status yeah. as statutory employees was still yeah. in question uh, and, and being appealed at that time. Yeah. Um, so we, we didn't know if, if those uh, protections extended uh, to college athletes. So. Mm -hmm. um, we, we weren't sure about that. Yeah. 
Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, like, kind of a very, a very brief question, but an important one, I think. In your experience with this union drive, was there a racial component to the support of the union? Certainly, I, I think you know the, the salient issue that, that a lot of the players saw was that um, you know black athletes, uh, black and brown athletes, you know, usually make up three percent of of you know, the general student body, but uh, you know, close to sixty, seventy percent of mm-hmm. the starting rosters on the revenue sports, and then so they saw this disparate impact happening. Mm-hmm. And and felt like this was a, a way to address those issues, um, but you know, as a team, you know, proven by the ninety eight percent of the union cards signed, it was it was truly amongst the, the support was truly amongst almost everybody on the team. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, okay, well, we're we're gonna start to shift in a minute. There's 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 just so much to talk to you about. Uh, I realize that as I look at the clock, and I'm like, oh man, we have so much more I want to talk about too. But I'm just so fascinated by what you're uh, explaining to us right now. This is a random question, but I'm really curious. I've always wondered about this connection. Did, were you teammates with Justin Jackson now of the San Diego Chargers? Uh, he, I think Justin came in the, the year that I left. Um, so okay, so actually. Did did not uh, play uh, at the same same time. We were teammates at the same time. Okay, I asked that because he's been unbelievable in terms of his, his advocacy. Has been great, right? Yes. Right, and so I just wondered. I wondered if that was a partially, a, in some way, a formative experience, you know, or if there was something about the culture that you guys produced that kind of connected with him. But you know, I guess it's hard to say. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Justin, and you know, um, not only his performance on the field, but everything he's been doing. Yeah, uh, awesome. his advocacy, you know. And leadership, um, and just you know the way he carries and conducts himself, um, it's very impressive to me. Totally, yeah. No, I I, I echo that one hundred percent. I admire him greatly. Um, okay, so here's the thing: we're gonna sh- we're gonna shift now, obviously, to the pandemic and what the kind of conditions of the pandemic have led to from a labor standpoint. But I can't do that before I ask you something. Go back to something you said. You mentioned CTE, and this is something that you know I have spoken a lot about and I teach about. But it's a really hard thing for me, I find, to talk to football players about because football players have to cope with the danger, the risk, the harm, right? And as a football player, I, I never was in your shoes, so I'm just imagining. But like, you can't have doubt when you're playing, right? You can't have doubt because any kind of, anything that's getting in the way of your performance is going to lead to your own physical harm on the field. Um, people have to play with a level of aggression or it's not going to work at this kind of level. Um, but yet at the same time, I, I can hear in talking to you, like you're someone that understands that, um, that there are significant health risks inherently with respect to football. Like forget about the pandemic. Football is already and always in, head, in health crisis. We now understand because of CTE and such things. I'm curious how you coped with that as a player and how you kind of, how you view that aspect of football today. That's a good question. Um, you know, as, as far as the games, you know, we, we, we promote 100% effort, you know, going full speed. And, um, you know, the, I think the, the actual games, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, what they're finding as far as, you know, CT and, and the risks and, and trying to mitigate the risks is that, you know, um, the, the more significant issue isn't, isn't necessarily the concussions themselves, but, you know, the, the, these sub-concussive blows a lot of times that happen in practice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where, where the majority of the, the, the hitting is, is happening and occurring. And, um, you know, while the NFL and the NFLPA have been able to reduce some of the exposure and mitigate the risk that, that their players have by reducing contact and practices, you know, the NCAA has, has not followed suit. 
and um, you know there, there really aren't these restrictions in place. And so I think as far as trying to make the game safer um, and you know, promoting you know, mental health for, for the college athletes, there, there should be a, a close look at essentially the working conditions. Um, you know, and while, while these players are in practice, how much are they hitting? You know, maybe there should be, you know, I, I, I don't know specifically, but, you know, it's kind of how they have pitch count for, I mean, uh, yeah, pitch count for pitchers to protect their arms, you know, maybe hit count practices. Um, trying to reduce, you know, these sub-concussive blows, which, you know, truly rattle the brain kind of leading you know, to these symptoms of, of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, so. Yeah. No, I, I, wonder if, I, I wonder, because even like, you know, some time has passed and, and there's so much more information. A lot of the big Boston University, I don't know how closely you follow it, um, but a lot of the big Boston University studies have come out, you know, since your career, right? Like in 2017, um, just this past fall, they've been like, they're, they're, you know what I mean? They're just because they've been doing the work on the brains of deceased athletes and they have this, the sample is accumulating, so they have way more information than when you were a current player. Um, does that information, like, it's a weird hypothetical, but if you were going back in time, if you were imagining like your own children, does that stuff affect your attitude to football and like participation in football at all? Or do you feel like you kind of have this, like it, it doesn't get in the way of your own appreciation for the sport? I, I truly appreciate the, the sport. And I think it's, a, it's a, an amazing team sport. And uh, in my own personal opinion, you know, one of the, one of the greatest team sports. Um, but I, I think that as we look at, you know, contact football and, and youth sports and at what age you know, players should be allowed to play, you know, what kind of protections are put in place in, in youth sports, especially looking at like Pop Warner um, and, you know, also, you know, building up to the high school and, and collegiate level. I think really is, it's really a public health issue. And this is especially, uh, you know, football at our institutions of, of higher education. Yeah, I think we need to take a, um, a real look at, at, at you know, the, the detriment to mental health of, of students, you know, because of, of the game and, and some of the, 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 um, the, the practices, uh, you know, within, within the game of football. Um, and I, I think there certainly are ways to, to mitigate uh, exposure to traumatic brain injury in, in, the, in the contact sports. And, um, you know, in, in alignment and in the spirit of, of participation, democracy. I think college athletes should should play a you know pivotal role in, in determining you know some of these policies moving forward. Um, I'm, I'm not sure you know what what the game will look like you know moving forward. What you know what if it's going to continue at our institutions of, of higher education and also at the high school level. Um, but uh, you know, I, I'm convinced that there can be certain things to, you know done to, to mitigate. Um, you know, traumatic, traumatic brain injury in the sport. And, you know, I truly, truly do love the sport. And it's, it's given me so many different opportunities in my life and, and allowed me to do things that are, you know, um, that I might not have been able to do, you know, with, without it. And it's, been a, it's been a huge factor, um, you know, within my family. My, my father played uh, NCAA football at the University of Colorado. My uncle played. Um, University of Southern Cal, and, and um, it's 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 provided them a lot of opportunity and, and, and you know access in, into these important institutions in our country of, of higher education and college and university system. Um, but you know, I, I think I, I would certainly like to see you know changes made to make the the game more safer and, and to um, try and protect the brains of, of 
of these athletes. Yeah, and let me just say, I completely respect um, your take here, and especially the the fact that you're mentioning the importance of both mental and physical health all the way down to Pop Warner. Like, like I I agree with you that um, there needs to be some serious thought into reforming at least certain things. Um, and obviously as a former athlete who is, who loves the game um, you might have a, a different take on what that actually looks like. But in general, I think we need to like be rethinking or reimagining the sport so that we can take the, the science that we've learned and all the evidence that we have um, to suggest that it's, it's really damaging for, for some people to engage in the sport and kind of change and no make doubt. some policies. Um, so we, I really, really respect um, your, and I'm thank you very much for sharing that with us because we tend to always just like be, Oh, I feel like sometimes I, I like to like talk for other people, but it's great to hear it um, um, from you. I'd like to pivot a little bit to, because we're talking about health. So we have this amazing moment playing out in front of us where there's not only social rebellion and kind of societal upheaval, but there's also a global pandemic. And in some ways that social upheaval upheaval was um, sort of created by um, the the health issue that we're seeing um, with, with COVID-19. So I'd like to get your impression of how players across the country have been treated during this pandemic. And if you've been in, in touch with any of them, do you have a sense of what they're going through? Um, do you have any kind of insider information that you'd like to kind of share with us about what you're hearing and what you're seeing um, happen right now with this return to play? Sure. I, I think I should start off by saying I, I haven't you know, been in touch with, with any of the, the, the current college athletes or the ones um, you know, particularly leading this movement. But from you know, an outsider's view, uh, since I'm you know, kind of outside of the game right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think it's, it's terrible that there's kind of you know, been this rush back uh, without you know, a true taking into account of, of um, you know, the ramifications of, of, of playing during this pandemic, um, you know, particularly for the sake of television contracts and gambling and, uh, you know, sports, things like this. Uh, obviously, you know, sports occupy an important role in our society and bring a lot of people together. And, and I think we'd, we'd love to you know, see it continued, but not at the, the detriment of, of the athletes and, you know, putting them in, in harm's way. Um, and, you know, we've, we've seen you know, some of the, you know, test results come back and, um, you know, specifically in a sport where it's, it's impossible to, to maintain, you know, some of these social mm-hmm. distancing requirements, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a contact sport. Yeah. Um, um, it's, 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 you know, some, somewhat unfortunate, but, um, actually, you know, really, really unfortunate. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud, uh, maybe proud isn't the right word. I'm really inspired and supportive of the players. Um, you know, making these demands to to make sure that their workplace is safe and and that they don't have you know firing you know without just cause you know that was a major demand. Even if they want to opt out, you know they should not have their academic scholarship removed. Um, mm-hmm. you know, certainly, and you know making sure that those are in place, uh, they're still able to attend you know college and university. You know, will, if if they decide not to play during this this global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which I, I think is, is extremely important. And, um, you know, the, the other demands are, are certainly reasonable. And I, I hope that, um, you know, the, 
the colleges and universities uh, grant them. And, um, you know, I think what the, what the study shows is that, you know, the, the amount of solidarity it, it, it takes to actually, um, you know, threaten a work stoppage and, and withhold your labor. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a lot of, 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 of unity amongst the players. And um, it's really a courageous action and, and truly inspiring, you know, for, for me. Uh, to, to witness it, and um, I'm in full support of, of them. And um, you know, I, I think that you know, as, as I look at it, it, it truly is a labor of love. <laughs> they, they, I think the college athletes love what they're doing, and, and they they want to be out there and playing, but maybe not at the risk of you know coming home and, and you know, contracting COVID or giving it to their families or um, you know, loved ones or you know, putting themselves at significant risk just to you know. Keep the keep the sport going during this this you know traumatic time. Yeah, I think we're 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 kind of seeing and and by the time this episode actually comes out, so this episode is going to come out Thursday, and by the time this episode is out, we could very well see all five power conferences decide that there will not be a college football season. But one of the things that we've talked about a lot in this show that you probably aren't privy to, but we've talked on the show about how harm has already been done. We tend to think of like, if we have the college football season, we will be putting these people at risk. But the truth is, like these these athletes have been on campuses for the summer. They've already been put yes, at it's, risk. It's a year-round gig, you know, especially, yeah. you know, there's a case to be made that they, they kind of, you know, somewhat put in more hours than even, you know, professional NFL league, you know, with, with spring ball and things like that, you know, having to you know, return in the summer. Um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure, but you know, I think there, there's a strong case to be made. And uh, yeah, the amount of preparation that that goes into you know, college sports these days, especially college football and the revenue sports, um, you know, there, there has certainly been been harm done. And uh, as we saw, there, there have been these these attempts by the universities to you know sign have the players sign these waiver agreements and reduce their liability, mm-hmm. um, not only with with regards to COVID, but also you know as we've seen with, with other injuries and specifically you know, traumatic brain injury and, and CT mm-hmm. and some of these lingering effects of, of injuries going on. But, um, you know, without, without, you know, having, you know, workers compensation in place and, and you know, some of the, the benefits that could be provided if they, if they are indeed, you know, hurt on the job. And you know, we have, they have a situation today where, you know, these other employees that would, would, would be, um, that that are employed off the the basis of the, the labor of the college athletes, whether it be you know the ticket takers, you know, the people working the concessions, uh, they, they sometimes talk about the restroom attendants as well. Like all these people, these employees um, are protected by workers' compensation and some of these rights, but the players yeah. themselves aren't protected. I think it's yeah. atrocious and ridiculous, and you know, um, I think it's great that you know they're they're standing up you know for their rights um, at this time and, and in this uh, this day and age. Yeah, and and one one of the reasons why I was like bringing up that that harm that's already done is, I think one of the things that need we need to have a serious discussion about within broader society after this is all said and done is about NCAA and member institutions finding some way to pay for the harm that they've already done so it's not just about workman's comp like this is something we have to have and and kind of be pushing on the ncaa to be like it doesn't matter if you've had a season 
it, like none of that matters. You already put people at harm and we don't know anything about COVID. We're hearing now that it, it affects people's hearts and, and people have more damage um, than like a heart attack um, it, when they've had COVID and all these things. So the fact that people have been brought onto campus um, and we've seen outbreaks, we saw Clemson, we saw Oklahoma, we saw Kansas, we've seen all these outbreaks that are um, definitely impacted or influenced by bringing collegiate athletes onto campus. I think like labor movement, people, us in the media, people in the media, academics need to be supporting athletes to after this is done or even now fight back against the NCAA and say, you already put us at harm and you need to pay in some way. So I kind of want to get your thoughts on, on that. Has that come to your mind at all? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and you know, the, the university and athletic department should not be indemnified and you know, they, there should be a nullification of, of these liability waivers that they've tried to, to sign in regards yeah. to you know, the liability that they face and, and, in terms of a lot of these issues, um, you know, that was, I believe, a part of the list of demands made by the Pac-12 and the yep. players and, and you know, all the other, um, you know, players from other conferences that are, that are um, you know, in solidarity um, with, with, you know, other college athletes. And um, I think that that's, uh, that's a, a very important demand that they're making mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. something that should be um, brought to the attention of the, of the general public and, um, you know, I'm glad to see that there's support amongst the the faculty and academic staff at the university. You know, so you know, teaching mm-hmm. assistants, graduate assistants, other other employees in the university. And um, yeah, I'm 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 happy that they're making demands that this this demand specifically not indemnifying their employers. Yeah. Uh, with regard to, to putting them in at harm, um, and all you know, and, and the harm that's already been been done by by you know having them come back mm-hmm. uh, and prepare for these seasons. So. I agree. Listen, you, you said it perfectly. Like what these athletes and what you have been doing is, is absolutely inspiring. It's inspiring to see what's happening right now. It's inspiring to see these people who are fighting in solidarity for things that really truly matter and that people on the outside don't understand and don't want to understand. One of the things that we've really Another kind of line of thinking we've been really trying to critique or trying to oppose is this idea um, that is out there mostly amongst um, college football fans. Um, and they continue to, to promote this narrative over and, and I see it on social media. I see it everywhere. I see it on ESPN that like athletes want to play because they love the game and any critic of that are simply sort of, or anyone who says otherwise, they're simply outsiders who don't understand the reality of what college athletes actually want. Um, last episode um, that we did in this, uh, in this podcast, uh, we had Ricky Volante on, who's CEO of the Professional Collegiate League. He was on the show and he called that kind of line of thinking bullshit. Um, he kind of said it, it's not a dichotomy. It's not one or the other. Like you can love the game, but also want changes in the game. I'd love to hear your thought as a, as a former athlete on this narrative that like these people just want to play the game and we are not work. You critics, you're not listening to the athletes. Yeah. It's, it's not mutually exclusive to, to love your labor and, and also want to change it for the better. 
and you know, I think they want safe workplace conditions. They they want uh, just uh, you know just policies you know within the NCAA. Uh, they want they want true participation and and have their voice heard, a seat at the table. Um, you know, from what I can gather and, and from you know my experience in in, in organizing college athletes, um, that doesn't mean that they, they don't love their sport and 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 you know want to continue playing their sport. Um, but you know, I, I think you know most people at this time realize that that the NCAA is is largely a corrupt institution. Yeah, and that. that Things have, have somewhat got got out of control in, in this you know thirteen billion dollar a year uh, amateur sports league uh, at our, our institutions of higher education. But um, you know I think that you know what sh- what should happen is is that college athletes should have increased participation in their list of demands and grievances should should be heard and um, you know they're they're. Uh, it can certainly coexist that they that they love their sport, but also want to endeavor to make it safer and and more just. Mm-hmm. Does it does it bother you overall? Does it bother you um, when fans of um, college football tell you as an athlete, or or like did it bother you when you were an athlete, and does it bother you now that you um, have graduated? When they tell you how you should feel about playing and about your own gratitude for the fact that you have a scholarship, did that like bother you when you were playing? Certainly, any anybody that's trying to you know, quiet quiet uh, you know, a person's voice, take away their autonomy, yeah, and yeah. their ability to to speak for themselves is is ridiculous. Um, I, I think it's it's terrible for people to do that and and to act like you know that they you know, shouldn't shouldn't be able to to have a say, especially in, when people want to promote this idea of amateurism. You know, yeah, you know, it, it truly should be you know about you know, college athletes, you know, having full participation in the, in the sports league and and kind of you know making it their own. So uh, it's in, in aligned with the, the spirit of of how the NCAA. Uh, or at least college sports in this country were created um, with, with the players organizing it themselves. So, so I want to pivot a little bit back to the current position and, and the current things we're seeing in the pack um, and in the big 10, how do you appraise their current position? So we've seen the, a number of like different sort of strategies. How do you appraise what's happening right now? Do you, do you feel like they have a strong position? Certainly. And as far as tactics, uh, a work stoppage or a labor strike, you know, withholding your labor is, is a very strong position to have, especially, you know, while you know, they have these television contracts in place. Sports gambling has taken off, um, you know, in my home state of, of Colorado, um, they have, you know, legalized sports gambling. A lot of this was mm-hmm. on the back of, um, you know, former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, suing the NCAA on behalf of the, the citizens of New Jersey. Um, challenging this prohibition against sports gambling. It went to the Supreme Court of the United States and then they ruled in favor saying that states can create their own sports gambling laws and a lot of states have followed suit and that's, that's created another huge you know, revenue stream in this industry. Um, and so there's a lot at stake and if, if college athletes um, you know, you know, make, make this threat of, of withholding their labor, work stoppage, it has to be taken seriously. Their grievances have to be you know, taken seriously as well as their demands. So it is a, a strong, strong position for them, a strong strategy. Um, you all mentioned Missouri before, also the players at Grambling State. Um, you know, when, when they did threaten work stoppage, or actually went on work stoppage, a lot of their, their 
uh, demands were met and concerns were addressed. Um, you know, specifically at Missouri, I remember the, the president of the university having a step down within 24 hours. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, when, they, when, when the football players said they weren't going to play. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of money on the table, a lot, a lot riding on, on these games and the continuance of, of NCAA sports uh, as they are. But, um, you know, the, the, the players certainly have power and, uh, you know, work stoppage is, is one very uh, influential tactic to use. So, and, and I think it's ultimately going to be successful if, if they could stay strong and use the, the strength of that, that, that tactic. Yeah, no, I, like I'm completely with you. Um, I want to dig even deeper onto this because you mentioned t- tactics, and I think that's exactly the question right now. What, one of the things that's fascinating about this, and I think all three of us here, we all fundamentally agree that we have deep admiration for what these individuals are, are risking, the solidarity they're showing, uh, regardless of whether they're involved in the PAC movement, the Big Ten movement, the Mountain West, you know, they're not, they're not taking identical approaches. But this, like, none of us, I think, are interested in criticizing any of these athletes for what they're doing, because all of them are taking really incredibly admirable steps. However, um, I also think it's valuable in this moment to talk through tactics a little bit, right? Because... Um, this is almost, I mean, it's kind of unprecedented and we want the best outcome here. So there is a question about how you achieve it. And this, this is kind of how I see it. So the PAC, at least publicly, what we've seen is that they have taken absolutely the, the strongest approach, right? Um, much more in line with Missouri. They've threatened, as you say, they have threatened to withdraw their labor fundamentally. So that's, they're threatening to strike. Um, striking is the strongest move that any labor force has, right? And it's what brings about meaningful change, period. Um, It is the way in which labor movements move. Um, Working conditions, compensation, everything. We also have the Big Ten players taking what I would call maybe a slightly softer line in that they're basically, they're, they're, they're asking for slash demanding a say in their health and safety working conditions. They didn't as explicitly make a kind of threat around withdrawing labor, uh, and they didn't make as strong demands, I think, especially in terms of the economic piece. Uh, and the Mountain West is a little bit similar to that. And then, frankly, we're seeing people in other conferences who I think are trying behind the scenes to do work, but they haven't come out as publicly because it's, um, they, they may find themselves in an even more precarious position. So it's kind of a continuum in that sense, right, in terms of how much power each of these groups see themselves as having. And that's part of the tactical equation. I, and I'm sure you would agree, like, as someone who has done, and it's really critical to note, like, you've been an organizer after your time as a college football player. So you get organizing. Um, and so, like, some of the numbers matter to me here, right? Like, the Big Ten is at least saying that they have 1,000-plus players, right? The pack, it's been put at around 300-ish, I think, or hundreds-ish. And these numbers really matter. Uh, and they matter because what you can actually do in terms of withdrawing your labor is in part predicated on how much labor you're withdrawing. I'm a part of a really small union at Duke University. We only have hundreds of members. Realistically, we can't shut Duke down if we go on strike. And that means that we have to make really considered tactical decisions with that in mind, right? Because if we just say, like, strike, we got to strike, um, that's not necessarily going to hurt the university as much as it's going to hurt us in that moment. Um, the other thing I worry about is that a strike tests solidarity, right? Like, you mentioned that, and you went through that. You have the solidarity. You had 98 union cards signed. 
But then the more pressure, the more of a union busting campaign, the more that the institution starts to lean on you, coaches lean on you, everyone leans on you and says, listen, it may sound really, really wonderful to imagine this new universe that you want to create together of, you know, great working conditions, deserved working conditions. But here's what we're going to do to you (laughs) if you follow through on your threat, right? You have only four slash five years of time here in college, and you're going to lose that time. It's going to be gone. And your avenue to the NFL, that's going to be gone too. And that is scary shit to hear, especially for a young person who's never been involved in labor organizing before. So I, I don't mean to go on and on, but I just trying to kind of lay out for you some of the dynamics I'm thinking of here um, that have me kind of worried, curious. You're someone I want to run this by because I, I really feel like you have insight to provide on, on all this stuff. Yeah, I think that that's uh, it's a really good analysis. And um, I, I agree with, with many aspects of it. You know, when, I, when we were going through our organizing effort, you know, we always um, knew that, that a labor strike, withholding our labor, was a, a strategy or tactic that we could use, but we, we saw it as a difficult one to use at that time just because, um, you know, again, it is a labor love, and I think the players do want to play, yeah. and it's difficult. But I couldn't foresee COVID as, as anybody else, and I think that that's the one factor to take into account that really changes things uh, in this time. And um, I think that that makes the uh, possibility of, of a labor strike um, more realistic, uh, you know, d- during, uh, you know, during this global pandemic. Um, you know, I, I think that even if a, even if, if there wasn't a, a unanimous decision um, by each football team in the conference to go on a strike, uh, a significant percentage of a football team deciding not to play is, is, is catastrophic, you know, for, for the team, just because as you, as you mentioned, the amount of preparation, the 30 went into the season, the, um, you know, the, the depth charts that have been established by the coaching staff and things like that, you know, depending on, um, depending on the, uh, obviously the percentage of the players, uh, that, that, you know, maintain, uh, maintain the threat to, to go on, on strike and, and go through with it. I think that, you know, even a, 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 a percentage that, you know, maybe might be around 30% of, of players going on, on work stoppage would, would shut down, um, you know, college sports within the conference. So, you know, there, there are a lot of considerations to take into account. And, um, you know, I, I truly do, you know, support the players and I hope that, you know, they, they, um, you know, stay strong and, and maintain their, their unity and solidarity and uh, you'll know, see that you know, they're, they're much stronger together um, you know, and, and, and while they're making these demands. And uh, you know, hopefully there's, there's not this divide and conquer strategy that's, that's often put into place. Yeah. Well, listen, I, actually, I have to say, I'm surprised um, that, that, you kind of, that people haven't reached out to you to, to kind of have some of these conversations. I'm, cur- I'm curious, beyond what you've said, is there anything that you would kind of advise those players if they reached out to you? And just part of this question um, is also, I'm kind of curious why you aren't involved in college football organizing today, given that you um, have been involved in organizing. Like, I have nothing but, and I, want, I really want listeners to understand this, I have nothing but respect for who you are as an individual for the work that you have done. Like you started out as a college, like you were a college football player. You were taking an internship at Goldman Sachs and you ended up, I, I will be very comfortable saying, even though you don't, you're very, you're very humble, but like leading a union drive against um, a power five school 
And then you go out and you're an organizer with AFT, organizing grad workers in Wisconsin. You're working with Colorado working families. I mean, like, that's unbelievable. That is truly like admirable stuff. And I'm so I'm curious, because like, I, I know the person that you are. I'm curious why you aren't involved in college football organizing today. Thank you for the kind words. Um, I, li- I like to think that I am still, still somewhat involved, uh, a lot of times behind the scenes. Um, okay, okay, yeah. We did make a significant effort to try and, you know, um, make a connection with, with uh, you know, the, the recruits at the high school level before they, they made it into uh, actual NCAA and, and advise them on, on um, some of the contracts that they were signing and what they could negotiate for and, uh, you know, try and um, you know, discuss some of these ideas and, um, and, and kind of our, our movement in, in trying to increase participation in college sports and kind of let them know you know, what the NCAA is really about, you know, let them know about some of the pitfalls to, to look out for. And so, you know, we, we had a, a high school recruit awareness program um, that, that we started off with uh, in conjunction with the MBPA, the you know, Players Union for the NBA. And, uh, you know, they, they held a top 100 uh, basketball camp every year for, for the top 100 uh, high school basketball recruits at uh, University of Virginia, Charlottesville. And so we had a, a pretty significant high school uh, recruit awareness campaign where we wanted to, to talk to the high school recruits and, and their parents and guardians and educate them on some of these issues and kind of let them know, um, you know, what we've been doing and, and provide them some solutions. Um, and so, you know, we ha- I have uh, kind of maintained my involvement in, um, you know, this, this, this uh, you know, movement to organize college athletes. Um, and. Uh, I think that as far as our particular case at Northwestern, uh, you know, the, the doors are still open for college athletes to try and establish that formal collective bargaining unit and uh, establish their rights under employment law and, and prove that they're statutory employees. Uh, as I said, the National Labor Relations Board did not rule against us. Um, you know, they, they just did not exert jurisdiction. So even at the private schools or, you know, within the different public states, um, you know, respective of their labor laws, there, there still is this opportunity um, to uh, create a formal collective bargaining unit, and uh, you know, even you know, build upon our case. As, as, as I mentioned before, there, there's still an opportunity to make this case of, of joint employership at the conference level or the NCAA level, which would expand the, the bargaining unit tremendously and uh, allow college athletes to really deal with the root issues uh, as far as NCAA rules and regulations and, and conference rules and regulations. So, you know, I've been you know very supportive of that, but. Um, you know, also also trying to um, uh, you know ex- expand my opportunities within within the labor movement, understand other issues of, of employees at the university and, uh, and colleges colleges and universities. Um, I, I had the opportunity to work for American Federation of Teachers. Uh, spent a lot of time working with you know teachers assistance associations and, and graduate students trying to to organize and establish their rights under the labor law. And, um, you know, I think a lot of this goes hand in hand. And even w- within college athletics, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, th- I think back to, you know, many players that, that um, use their fifth year as a graduate student to, to continue playing for the team. And, you know, do they qualify as, as a member of the bargaining unit or some of these established unions, unions at, at the university, um, you know, teachers' assistants, uh, associations, and, and things of the such. Um, so I've been, you know, thinking about these issues. I continue continually think about these issues and kind of brainstorm ideas. But um, 
you know, as uh, as we can see, you know, there have been uh, you know, many players throughout the country also, you know, trying to find solutions to address some of their concerns. And, um, you know, I, I truly you know, support uh, all their efforts and any way I can help or assist, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to. Well, Kane Coulter, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Um, I hope that listeners really reflect on, on what you went through and what you accomplished for this movement. And, and I, I frankly would like to see more people referen- uh, kind of referring to, referencing um, your saga as they talk about the current moment because it is, it is part of the history that has built us. I think that Missouri was part of it, Northwestern was part of it, and hopefully um, the folks in the Pac-12 and across the country are writing the newest chapter that's going to going to change the NCAA and the way that these institutions exploit labor for good. So Kane Coulter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all so much for having me on the show and and giving me the opportunity uh, to, to speak on these issues. And I really enjoyed my time. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.